Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, ending the permanent lockdown, vaccine passports, and the government chooses suicide promotion over suicide prevention. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It's great to have you tuned into the program. Great to be back. I I took a couple of days. I don't want to say off, but I I took a couple of days in which I didn't record the show when I normally would because I was, as you may have seen, if you've been following True North, uh, starting the cross-country production of Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. We did a lot of filming last week in British Columbia, went all over the province, and had a, an absolutely great time, I think, talking to real gun owners, real Canadians, law-abiding people who are being affected by Justin Trudeau's uh, crusade against guns. And I want to play for you a little update I got to record against the backdrop of the beautiful mountains from British Columbia. I'm on the road. I'm traveling the country as part of the nationwide production tour of my first documentary, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. We kicked things off this week and it has been a busy week going across British Columbia. Right now I am in Chilliwack, BC. And let me tell you, I've been talking to gun owners, people who run gun businesses, people that advocate for firearms owners, and I even got the chance to head out to the range myself. That's what we're doing on this project. We're talking to the real people across this country who are affected negatively by Justin Trudeau's and the Liberal government's war on guns, and more importantly, the war on gun owners. This is a community that feels assaulted and violated by these policies, which is exactly why we did this. These people's stories aren't being told. So I'm going across the country, starting in BC, to put a face and a voice to these people. The mainstream media, the government, they may be ignoring these people, but we certainly aren't. If you support this project and want to be a part of it, head on over to www.assaulted.ca to learn about it and make a contribution. Anyone who donates more than $100 gets their name listed in the credits of each episode of this when it comes out later this year. From Chilliwack, BC, I'm Andrew Lawton. And thanks again to all of you who have supported this project so far. It's going great. We're going to be doing more filming in Alberta and Ontario in the next little while. And as I've mentioned, I'd love to get out to Atlantic Canada. I don't know if it's going to be possible with the travel restrictions there. I did look into it and they don't have like other jurisdictions do an exemption for people in media, for journalists. So if I were to go out there to do, you know, three or four days of filming, I'd have to first spend uh, two weeks in a hotel room, which... uh, (laughs) I mean, like so many other Canadians, I'm feeling like I would rather not be relegated to hotel quarantine. Uh, Although I will say the federal government is actually expanding the hotel quarantine. They didn't have nearly enough hotels, apparently, from demand. And I I think the government actually underestimated how many people are, are still wanting to travel. So when they first announced this, people were finding that they couldn't get into hotels because they were just uh, so insanely overbooked. You only had a few of them and, and not even entire hotels. It was just uh, smaller sections of hotels that were at airports. So this is something we saw. The Public Health Agency of Canada is accepting more hotel applications if they meet all these criteria. Right now, there are 47 hotels available, some of which can be booked online, uh, but they're trying to get more and more of these. And and I just will say that when we were headed out to do Assaulted, there was still a a fair bit of travel going on. And I I don't know how many people were going internationally or not. Uh, There was one family that I was on a plane with that was off to Florida. 
a family of four. So people are still traveling. The challenge is the government has made it harder and harder for individuals to do it, especially for families. And some people, they have the money, they can afford to take the two weeks of quarantine, they can afford to spend uh, two grand on the quarantine hotel or all that jazz, but they actually are still able to travel. So all the government has done is gone after people who are of lesser means, which is funny because this is the government that claims that it's the great uh, resolver of the inequalities of the world, but now they've just made international travel a privilege for only the elites of society. The problem that we have is that other countries are going to be safer and safer than Canada is. Other countries are in the process of reopening. Other countries are in the process of getting their populations vaccinated for those who want it, whereas Canada is lagging significantly. I think every time I check the list, we keep going down it even more. And these are the hotels, of course, where uh, one woman had been sexually assaulted. So uh, there are significant problems in how the hotels are adjusting to this program as it is, which means I I'm quite sympathetic to Canadians that aren't quite fans of it. And it's interesting. You can take hotels that have been operating for years just fine. The second you make the hotels agents of government, they cease to be able to do anything on their own. That's the problem. Once government gets involved, no one has any idea how to do it, and everything is like reinventing the wheel. Even booking a reservation at one of these hotels, which you could always just do by calling up the hotel, the government tried to centralize the process, which was really the uh, beginning of why uh, all of it was just so difficult for people and you had people that were at the airport arrivals area just trying to book their quarantine hotel and, and not able to get through, which, oh shucks, whatever. I mentioned in a brief video last week that we need to see more politicians speaking up against lockdowns. And I had talked about a couple of examples. The most recent was Conservative MP David Sweet, but very small numbers of politicians that are standing up and saying, no, lockdowns have to stop. And when they do finding themselves relegated to the fringes of discourse. What Aaron O'Toole had said to David Sweet is that, oh, well, you know, I understand people getting frustrated a year in, but we can't do counterproductive things. Really? Opposing lockdown is counterproductive? We know Roman Baber was kicked out of caucus for opposing lockdowns, Belinda Carajalios for uh, trying to go against her PC party and her government at the time because she didn't like that they were trying to seize power. So all of these people that have been standing up for the right to get back to our normal lives, for the most part, are being forced into the fringes of political debate. And I was very pleased to see this weekend Michelle Rempel, a conservative MP, uh, actually sponsor a petition and release a video on the importance of having a new path forward, what she called a plan for hope. And I'm not saying I was responsible for it. Michelle has been always solid on the side of business. But it was good to see a petition go forward, and, and more importantly, good to see a voice from the mainstream political debate saying, you know what, this has to stop. Here was a, a little bit of the video that she posted accompanying the petition. Every Canadian watching this will have sacrificed something over the last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. The good news is that a year into the pandemic, the world has tools to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and to protect those who are, who are most vulnerable to it in a much better way. We have things like rapid tests, we have things like vaccines, and we have things like therapeutics. We, we didn't have a year ago, and we have better data now to understand how COVID-19 spreads, what it is, and how to prevent it. A year into the pandemic, after Many have lost their lives and or lost their jobs or are having a hard time with their mental health. It's time that we have some hope 
I think that at this point, after a year, it is more than reasonable for leaders across the country, but particularly in the federal government, to be providing a plan to Canadians to tell us how they're going to use these new tools, deploy them in a widespread fashion, so that we can stop the never-ending and uncertain threat of more and deeper COVID-19 restrictions. And admittedly, it's kind of a depressing petition, but it's more depressing in the sense of what it's coming in the context of. The uh, orders are to immediately present a clear plan to get Canadians safely out of lockdown, and that this plan include dr data-driven goals, a plan of action, and a timeline to achieve those goals, and ensure the plan is articulated to Canadians so they have hope about when life and business will return to normal. And just to put this in context here, 51% of Canadian businesses are uncertain they can remain open, according to the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And I, I don't know if this is exactly a scientific poll, but still, it's from a survey on business conditions, talking to business owners, and half of Canadian businesses, half of Canadian businesses are saying, you know what, we might have to shut down before the end of the year. And part of what I was talking about earlier with the assaulted documentary is talking to gun owners who are affected and gun business owners too, affected by government policies that have basically written off their businesses. Well, if 50% of businesses in Canada are saying they can't uh, see a future for themselves, this is gun businesses, this is restaurants, this is pharmacies, retail outlets, this is any number of enterprise in Canada. And what's going to happen, and this is where you start going down that road where a lot of people have said it before of the cure being worse than the disease because a lot of people simply do not see a future under the economic conditions right now that are being created by the government. And you can't just keep everyone on the, whatever CERB became, I think the CRB, you can't just keep everyone on the government benefit program indefinitely as though that is a substitute for a society and a culture and a country in which people can go around, businesses can open their doors, people can live their lives as close to normally as possible. And the way we get to normal is very important. I, I want to just talk briefly about this admission from Health Minister Patty Haidu that apparently G7 nations are very seriously considering the idea of vaccine passports, which is basically a proof of vaccination that you need to go and, and live your life normally. And this is what Minister Haidu said on CTV. Health Minister Patty Haidu telling CTV's question period that a COVID-19 vaccination passport is a very live discussion among G7 countries. The International Association of Transportation um, is looking at uh, exactly that. What kind of evidence or documents do people have to provide in order to resume it? Now, less than two months ago, Justin Trudeau called the idea of vaccine passports divisive. He said there was no plan to do it. It's not going to happen. That's not the road we're going down. And now we have Health Minister Patty Haidu, who is not saying clearly in the interview whether Canada is considering it, although is saying that the discussion is being had by G7 countries in which Canada is a part. Now, there are two aspects of this. There's whether you would have something like this domestically and whether you'd have it in internationally. And I am a firm believer in countries' rights to secure their own, own borders. So the reality of this is that a country like Israel, a country like the UK, a country like France or whatever, could very easily say, we will not take tourists unless they have a vaccine. And in that case, even if Canada isn't a part of a vaccine passport, Canada has to play by that. 
And this is the problem with global politics becoming the norm. This is the problem with international institutions getting to call the shots instead of just sovereign states deciding what's right for themselves. Because if there is an international push for this, like at the G7 level or even larger, then we're going to see Canada having to go along with it. And for example, Air Canada could say, well, you know, we don't care. We, you don't need a vaccine passport to fly to us. But if the destination you want to go on your Air Canada flight to requires it, you're kind of stuck in that. So even if Canada doesn't go down the road of requiring this domestically, it's still going to be something that I, I'm confident people are going to have to have because the world seems to be moving in that direction. And, and there is a, a significant challenge here that the world is moving more towards this place where we don't have a respect for civil liberties, we don't have a respect for individuality, we don't have a respect for the right to work, the right to have your business open. And those will be long-lasting effects of this. We hear a lot of talk about the long COVID, people who have symptoms of COVID long after their diagnosis. Well, we also have the long pandemic, which is uh, governments uh, continuing to impose conditions and restrictions on people long after the public health emergency has elapsed. And that's the direction we're headed now. And it's a dangerous one. And why we need to see more political leadership pushing back against these lockdowns and pushing back against these restrictions. So I commend Michelle Rempel for doing it. I want to see more of her colleagues, not just sponsoring petitions, but introducing motions, actually vocally calling out governments that continue to use non-scientific measures to restrict things in the so-called name of public health that aren't actually amounting to all that much in the success against COVID-19. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to shift to an issue that is a personal one, but one that has become political. Isn't that that old feminist axiom that the personal is the political? Well, that's never been truer on this issue. As some of you may know, and some of you may not know, I actually don't know what you know, I am a suicide survivor. About 10 years ago, more than that actually, at the end of 2010, I was nearly successful in attempting to take my own life. And as far as the, the reasons and the circumstances go, they're, they're not particularly relevant to this discussion, except for the fact that I was dealing with, for several years, rather serious depression. So serious, in fact, that I thought that my life would be better served by being over than by continuing. Why this is relevant now is that the Liberal government is entertaining a Senate amendment to a bill expanding access to assisted death, and one of the amendments makes it so that someone whose sole issue is uh, dealing with mental illness could access medical assisted death, could access assisted suicide in the healthcare system. Someone with depression, where we would normally say, well, here are all the reasons you shouldn't end your life, would now be given the means to do it. Now, the implications of this on the mental health care system are significant. The Canadian Mental Health Association, which is not generally a political body at all, has come out against this, saying that, well, we're a recovery organization. We can't accept legislation that views mental illnesses as irremediable, which is really at the cornerstone of assisted death. You have to have something that is not going to get better. Well, to go back to my own story as a suicide survivor, I was 110% convinced that there was no way my life could get better, and that's why I had to try to take my life. 
And this is so heartbreaking when I think of how the government is actually going down the road of suicide promotion rather than prevention. They are fostering what is really a culture that is the one we've been trying to fight against. Think of how many billions of dollars have been spent on mental illness awareness campaigns, on different treatment program, expanding access to care. And all behind that is the message to people that, hey, you're loved. We want to help you. We want to reach out and help you. So for the government to turn around and say, as they are saying, in effect, by accepting this amendment, that, you know what? If you want to take your life, you want to kill yourself, that's completely your choice. Have at it. Have fun. We'll even help you do it. Now, this is something that would never fly if they had put this in the original text of the bill, but I almost wonder if it was intentional, if this was orchestrated so that they didn't actually have to have any parliamentary scrutiny over it if they had put it forward right at the very, right at the outset with this. I want to talk about the process and the implications of this with MP Garnet Jenis, Conservative Member of Parliament, who has done a lot of great work on this issue. Garnet, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. And I should say that we were actually speaking about this on your show last night, on your uh, Facebook page, and I'm glad to uh, be back in our our respective normal chairs here with you being interviewed by me. It's good to have you. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's uh, so great to be with you this morning. Now, you've actually wanted to get people to tell their stories. That was part of why you had invited me to go on your Facebook stream last night, and and I know you've done this with other people and are are continuing to do it. You've launched a website, tellmetostay.ca. What is that? We've reached out to people to ask them to share their stories, uh, their personal stories uh, related to uh, mental health challenges and how they think C7 would affect them or could have affected them uh, at past uh, moments of crisis. Uh, And we've gotten uh, over 70 stories already from Canadians who have personal experiences that they're uh, prepared to share. So we had a press conference with a number of those folks on Monday. Uh, We're doing uh, Facebook Lives on my page every night this week sharing those stories. Uh, We're not going to have enough time uh, to share all of them, but um, but I really salute people who who have the courage to come forward and share their personal experiences. And then just on the on the process side, because I think it is important that the government is trying to rush this through, relatively speaking, in in, in the dead of night. Uh, that we we had a bill that specifically excluded uh, medical assistance in dying for those with mental health challenges. Uh, that was amended by the Senate, and then at the last minute, the government said, yeah, we're going to accept the Senate amendment. Uh, they decided to do that in a motion that was published late on a Tuesday night, pardon me, on a Monday night, and then they expected the House to pass it the following day. Just just totally outrageous, their expectation that that between announcing this change in position and the adoption of the House of Commons, they could push that through uh, within uh, within 24 hours. And they kept trying different procedural things to rush this through. Uh, and... Um, you know, and and we've said no. We need to hear from Canadians on this. We this this is an issue that that should at least be studied by a parliamentary committee. Uh, this is a dramatic change in in how our society would operate from one in which people with mental health challenges are are, are offered suicide prevention uh, to one in which people with those mental health challenges could be offered suicide facilitation uh, by our public health care system. And that, that is a very important point. And, and one of the things I raised when you and I were speaking last night is that I'm convinced that if a committee were to hear the stories of people who themselves are survivors of suicide, people that have lost someone to suicide, there's no way in a million years they could actually get on board with, with passing this. And it, it almost seems deliberate in that way for this to come about without that process, without the opportunity to hear from witness testimony. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the House of Commons committee that was studying this, by the way, the House of Commons committee study on it was quite limited as well, because the whole story of this bill is you have a, a particular court decision in Quebec, the Truchon decision. Now, we, we think that should have been appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, but in any event, the government decided to legislate on the basis of that decision. But then they dramatically expanded the issues that were in that piece of legislation. So the Truchon decision dealt with, with the issue of reasonable foreseeability. The government Moved, removed a whole bunch of safeguards when they said we have to rush this bill through to make the court timeline. Well, if you want to worry about the court timeline, then how about you legislate in a way that specifically responds to the court and nothing else instead of throwing a whole bunch of other issues. And then this is just the continuation of this story, which is the government adding in the mental health piece at this late stage with with um, with no uh, House of Commons committee study on, on that issue at all. Um, and then them again using the excuse of the court deadline, even though very clearly uh, they're continually expanding the scope. The Trushan decision had nothing to do uh, with, with the mental health piece at all. That expansion is key because I remember when the very first uh, legislation was put forward, there were all of these safeguards and, and most people on the left were understanding that, yeah, you know, we need to have these safeguards, safeguards we need to have these restrictions. And it, they, they, those have been continuing to break down. And now with the mental health uh, case that we're talking about now, even beyond things that weren't even talked about, things that were actually laughed at when someone would were to bring them up, because I remember I brought this up the first time around and was told, no, no, no. It's never, we're never going down that road. That's never going to happen. And you have to be concerned about where it's going to go from here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been a parliamentarian for since 2015. So it was, you know, relatively short time. Um, and, and, yet, and yet I'm old enough to remember a time when liberals said the safeguards they're now removing uh, were, were so vitally important. I don't think the safeguards in the original bill were were sufficient, and there were a number of proposals that we would had, had put forward around that. Uh, but some of the you know the very basic things like a like a ten day reflection period. Uh, the existing law has a 10-day reflection period. That reflection period can be waived with the agreement of of, of the the two doctors involved. Um, so it's not it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's kind of a default position that you would have a 10-day reflection period. Uh, this this uh, new version of the bill proposes to do away with the reflection period. Uh, it proposes to to uh, reduce the requirements for independent witnesses, uh, and that in addition to uh, creating a situation where people with disabilities, uh, people with mental health challenges are much more likely to be, uh, be, be moved in this direction. Uh, but, you know, the, the current system still has problems with it. I mean, we already had testimony from people living with disabilities uh, who were pushed in this direction, who were who who repeatedly had uh, had uh, euthanasia brought up to them, even though they had said they didn't want it. Uh, a case of a of a, a lady being told that she was selfish uh, because her her daughter didn't want to uh, didn't want to go in this direction. So, um, you know, people people champion this on, on the basis of autonomy, but the, the social context in which that autonomy is is expressed matters a lot. Uh, and and now with the risk that people and facing mental health challenges could be uh, pressured or encouraged uh, in this direction, or, or, or even that just the suicide prevention piece would be removed, uh, raises, it raises very serious concerns about the direction we're going and, and so quickly uh, from where we, we said we were in 2015-16, you know, this would be a rare exceptional case uh, for, for uh, you know, terminally ill people uh, to, to where we are now. One of the things when you mentioned the reflection period, as I understand it in this bill, 
one of the things that could happen is a, a same day request that could be fulfilled. Is that correct? Yeah. So, and, and there's, there's some, some different categories. So the, so the, the legislation proposes to divide between the category of death reasonably foreseeable and death not reasonably foreseeable. And uh, the concept of reasonably foreseeability has always been a, a, a little bit fuzzy because it doesn't explicitly refer to someone being, uh, being terminal. Um, uh, but this legislation removes the 10-day reflection period or, or, or any kind of time-associated safeguard for those for whom death is reasonably foreseeable, uh, so-called. Uh, so it does mean in that case that a person could request and receive a euthanasia on the same day. Uh, and, and I don't think that makes sense. I don't think it makes sense that someone's uh, worst day could be their last, uh, that you, know, you, you could visit a family member in the hospital on Wednesday, think everybody everything's fine, and then come back on Friday to find that, well, this is this was their request, and 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 so we carried it out right away. I just, you know, I, I don't think that's sort of in line with a with a with a reasoned consideration of what autonomy looks like, which is people uh, being given the time and space to consider their options over a certain period of time. You talked earlier about suicide prevention objectives, and, and this is something that's not lost on me. The government has put billions of dollars into this. We have billions of dollars put into this through charitable campaigns and efforts. We've got colored ribbon campaigns for suicide awareness and prevention. We've got committees, councils, ads, all of these things that is trying to that are trying to serve the public by telling people to reach out for help if you want to take your life because of mental illness. And, and has the government given any indication of how it reconciles these two positions? On one hand, this, uh, I say, vastly expanding public discussion about mental illness and suicide, and then this, which is saying that, you know what, if you're dealing with depression, that could be grounds for you to get a doctor-assisted death. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and, and, you know, ha has it disc been discussed? Has the government considered the implications of this? Um, you know, if they, if they've thought about it, they certainly haven't talked about it because this has had very limited debate so far and the government is, is trying everything they can uh, to justify rushing this through without that kind of consideration and discussion. Uh, Andrew, one of the concerns I have is that, is that people who, um, are, are struggling with, with mental health challenges, uh, are experiencing suicidal thoughts, uh, maybe less likely to seek help if they're concerned that, uh, that visiting their doctor, uh, might, might, might actually not be, not lead to them being, you know, encouraged to live, but them being offered, uh, the option of, uh, of death. I think, um, that this undermines what we want to see, which is people in those crisis situations, uh, reaching out to, to support structures that can kind of, uh, help them through some of the things they're, they're experiencing. Let me just go to a bit of a civics question here. You have talked about the fact that this really bypassed the House of Commons committee and, and the rapid pace at which this was accepted by the government in the House from the Senate recommendations. What's the next step on this now? Yeah, so so on, on the civic side, the the way uh, our system works, bicameral system, every bill has to pass both the House and the Senate in identical form. Uh, so uh, it, a bill can start either place. More more often, legislation starts in the House of Commons. It's adopted in a certain form. It goes to the Senate. If the Senate adopts it, then it it goes to the Governor General and and uh, becomes law. Uh, if the Senate uh, amends it, then we have a 
then it's referred back to the House of Commons and we have a motion on Senate amendments. And typically in this in these cases, as we see right now, the government has a motion which agrees with some of the Senate amendments, maybe doesn't agree with some of those amendments and modifies others. So in this case, you know, it says the, the government uh, respectfully disagrees with A and B, agrees with C, um, proposes the following changes to D and E, you know, some, some, something like that. That motion will be debated in the House of Commons. That motion itself could be amended. So the motion on Senate amendments could be amended. And right now we have a conservative amendment um, which seeks to change the government's motion on Senate amendments in terms of which amendments they're agreeing with and not agreeing with. Typically, in some form, the government's motion on Senate amendments will pass and then go back to the Senate. Because if the government agreed with all of the Senate amendments, then we'd be done. Uh, but if the government agrees with some and disagrees with others, then we still don't have uh, agreement. So then it goes back to the Senate, and then the Senate considers whether to uh, adopt the House of Commons uh, kind of revised version or to, in effect, make a counterproposal. So you can think of it sort of like a negotiation between the two uh, the two chambers where each one has to um, debate and then conclude on a position and then send that position back and forth. Now, there are there are some some complex procedures uh, in, in the standing orders if we get to a point where there uh, there just seem to be irreconcilable differences. In the time I've been a member of parliament, it's kind of at most gone one, two, three, four, House, Senate, then a House motion to concur some and others, and then back to the Senate for, for final agreement. That's what happened actually with Bill uh, C-14, the original uh, euthanasia legislation. Um, uh, and uh, you know we'll, we'll see how this unfolds on, on Bill C-7. Uh, but in a minority parliament, uh, with some indication that, uh, that some liberals are uncomfortable with the direction of the government on this mental health issue, uh, it's really important for people to to seize this moment now to talk to their MPs uh, and to ask them to um, to rethink this uh, this facilitated suicide for the mentally ill uh, proposal that that has been added on to C7 at the last minute. Well, I appreciate the uh, explanation there and, and also your work on this conservative MP Garnet Janice. Always a pleasure, Garnet. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate the opportunity. My thanks again to Garnet for coming on the show today and to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back in a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.